listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in August in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now this summer we have had a parade of all the naked eye planets visible each night. That is beginning to come to a close now with Mercury passing too close to the Sun to be visible this month. However, Venus will be visible for a while yet, over to the west shortly after sunset. Mars and Saturn are still very well placed to be seen around midnight in the south. And finally Jupiter, which is slowly setting earlier and earlier each night, makes for a fantastic target with a pair of binoculars or even a small telescope. Look out for its large Galilean moons as they fly around Jupiter, changing position from night to night. Following the spectacle of the total lunar eclipse last month, we won't have anything quite as dramatic to watch this month. There is a partial solar eclipse, but unfortunately it won't be visible from anywhere in the UK. However, if you do happen to be holidaying in Northern Asia or Russia on the 11th, consider using a pinhole camera projection or solar eclipse glasses to see up to half of the sun be covered by the moon. While you would think this would make the day seem substantially dimmer, in reality, due to how our eyes work, the change in light level is unlikely to be noticed by those who aren't aware the eclipse is taking place. And while Asia is experiencing a partial solar eclipse, we here in the UK will be unable to see the moon at all during its new moon phase. Over the following week, the moon will pass close to Venus, then the star Spiker, and finally Jupiter, from the 14th, 15th and 17th of August respectively, all during its crescent moon phase. Now this is the ideal time to see the features on the surface of the moon placed in stark contrast by the long shadows at the terminator. This is the line between the light and dark sides of the moon. Look towards the west after sunset to see a view of the moon that changes nightly as it grows towards full moon on the 26th of August. There's plenty to see in deep space too this month. The band of faint light that is the path of our Milky Way galaxy is high in the sky. It's interrupted by the Great Rift, a dark rend in the Milky Way's path, which is actually a vast cloud of gas far off in our galaxy, blocking our view of its light. About 2,000 light years from the Sun is the Ring Nebula, visible to a small telescope in the constellation of Lyra, almost directly above our heads throughout August. This is the remnant of a star like our own sun that came to the end of its life, leaving behind a vast cloud of rapidly expanding gas and a tiny compact object the size of the Earth known as a white dwarf. However, this month the main event will be the Perseid meteor shower. Underway from all the way back to the 13th of July, it will peak around the 11th and 12th of August when it could be possible to see as many as 100 meteors per hour. However, you're likely to see far fewer if you don't have dark skies and optimal viewing conditions. This particular shower comes from the debris left behind by Comet Swift-Tuttle. Visible throughout the night, you can also wait until just after midnight for the best time to see them. In any case, fill your view with as much of the sky as possible and wait. With a bit of luck, you might be able to spot a fireball in amongst the normal meteors, 
one that shines brighter even than the planet Venus. If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROGAstronomers. You might also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, that's rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Okay, welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Every month, Dara and I choose a news story each that's captured our imagination. We want to, to share to you. Um, so Dara, what have you got uh, for us this month? Well, I'm sure many of our listeners may have come across this news story, but it excited all of us here at the Royal Observatory when we found out about it. Um, This is that 12 new moons have been found orbiting around Jupiter, and it brings its total up to 79. That seems crazy, doesn't it? Greedy, greedy planet. (laughs) It's a big one, isn't it? A monster of a planet captured in lots of moons, and we've now got almost 80 moons around this gas giant. It's the most of any planet in our solar system. Um, it's so big actually Jupiter as it could fit all the other planets inside it and still have a bit of room to spare so it's no kind of shock that it has this many. Um, We actually did a story a few months ago on the Juno probe which was a probe sent to Jupiter still there now trying to find out some of the mysteries about this gas giant. Um, So we think perhaps it was the Juno probe that actually found these 12 new moons but it wasn't at all. This was actually a team led by uh, Scott S. Shepard, who's at the Carnegie Institute of Science in Washington, D.C. And back in 2014, it was his same team that actually realised that there was a similarity of orbits of uh, several very small, extremely distant objects in our outer solar system. And so it not, could... not moons of Jupiter? No, much, much yes, they were looking at things much, much further away and they all had very similar orbits and it was something that could only be explained by the existence of an unknown massive planet orbiting very, very far out, uh, past the orbit of Pluto. Um, many people might now know this as Planet 9 or Planet X. Um, not an official planet as such because we haven't actually observed it or seen it, but there is evidence to suggest it's out there. Um, So this was the team that were actually looking for those distant solar system objects, things that might actually help them in the hunt for this planet X or planet 9. They actually first spotted the new moons around Jupiter last year, so in the spring of 2017. Um, They found them then actually because that was the time that Jupiter happened to be in the same part of the sky as the search fields where they were looking for these distant objects. Um, So they were able to look for these new moons around Jupiter at the same time. Now, they actually needed to make several observations. So even though they had first spotted them almost a year ago, um, it actually took a bit more time to actually confirm that these moons actually were moons around the planet. And it was a man called Gareth Williams uh, at the uh, IAU, the International Astronomical Union. Um, He used uh, that team's observations to try and calculate the orbits of these newly found objects. So the initial discoveries, they were made on the Blanco 4 meter telescope uh, in Chile. Uh, several con- uh, telescopes there have been used to confirm their findings. Uh, a couple of them include the six and a half meter Magellan telescope at Carnegie's campus in Chile, and also the eight meter Subaru telescope in Hawaii to name just a few. So there's been a whole host of different telescopes around the world trying to help confirm these moons. Now, the interesting about these 12 moons is they're not found in the same place. So Jupiter's moons are actually found in what could be described as uh, swarms of moons around the planet itself. 
So we have the four famous Galilean moons quite close to Jupiter, uh, or the closest spherical moons around Jupiter at least. They all orbit around Jupiter in what we call a prograde manner. So they are orbiting around Jupiter in the same direction that Jupiter spins on its axis. But further out from that, further out from those four Galilean moons, there are a set of other inner moons. Um, and they all have prograde orbits too, they're orbiting in that same direction. And two of these 12 new moons were found in this inner set of moons. They all have very similar orbital distances, so roughly the same distance from Jupiter. They're inclined at the same sort of inclination from Jupiter too. So it's believed that those moons actually originated from a larger moon in the past that actually broke apart. So these tiny moons we're seeing are the remnants of a larger moon in, in the past, basically. So we have the Galilean moons, we have those inner prograde moons, but even further out from that, uh, there's another swarm of moons, and they're this time orbiting in a retrograde motion. So they're, they're orbiting around Jupiter in the complete opposite direction that Jupiter is spinning on its axis. They're going backwards. Yeah, yeah. Fancy words in science. Prograde, <laughs> retrograde, we're only talking about forwards and backwards. Um, so these moons are further out. They take about two years to orbit around Jupiter, so it gives you an idea of how far they actually are, our moon takes just shy of a month, 27.3 days to make an orbit around our Earth. So a moon that takes two years, it's a fair distance out. Um, these moons aren't very similar. They're actually split into three distinct kind of groups. Um, and they're all thought to have formed from three distinct objects. So these are objects which may have been broken apart by asteroid collisions or comet collisions, or perhaps even collisions with other moons. And actually nine of the new moons that are discovered in this 12 set are actually moons that are moving in this backwards retrograde uh, kind of group or swarm of moons. So we had those inner Galilean moons moving in the same direction as Jupiter, or as Jupiter spin, the inner prograde moons as well, where two of the new ones have been found, and then the outer retrograde or backwards moving moons, and nine of them had been found there. And that leaves one. So the 12th moon has been described as a bit of an oddball. And there's always one, isn't there, Greg? Yeah, one that just absolutely. doesn't quite fit. Um, this is a prograde moon. We'd expect it to be in the inner group that are moving in that motion. But actually, this moon is much more distant and has a much more inclined orbit. In fact, it has an orbit that crosses those outer retrograde moons. So it's basically doing what it kind of shouldn't be doing. It's not fitting the pattern. Uh, it's also likely to be Jupiter's smallest moon at less than a kilometre across. So we're talking about an absolutely tiny piece of rock orbiting around Jupiter. Um, the fact that it's actually going in uh, that prograde motion, where all the other moons around it are going in a retrograde backwards motion, suggests that uh, collisions should be very, very likely. There should be lots of head-on collisions between this oddball moon and all the other objects that it's travelling around with, but are travelling in the opposite direction. Um, and head-on collisions should eventually break this moon down into tiny pits of dust. It should eventually just break apart. Um, so it's an unstable situation that we have this moon in, yet yeah, it's there and it exists. So the current thinking is that this small, oddball, prograde moon is actually the last remaining remnant or piece of a once larger prograde orbiting moon. So during the past there were some head-on collisions and this larger moon would have been broken apart and actually gone into forming some of those backwards orbiting moons. 
but actually this oddball moon may be the last little piece of this moon, uh, a last remnant of it traveling in that prograde motion. And actually the discovery of these very small moons between one and three kilometers, uh, they're all found in different kind of swarms around Jupiter, but it suggests that collisions that created all these moons must have happened before, uh, or must have happened after all the planets had formed. Um, if we think about how our sun formed from this huge cloud of gas and dust, there would have been a whole protoplanetary disk, a disk of gas, dust and material, and the planets would have formed from that. And around the planets, there would have still been this gas and dust being kind of accreted into the planets or eventually swept out by the solar wind. If these moons were around back then, uh, that gas and dust would eventually have slowed them down and they would have been swept up by Jupiter. They would have been eaten. Yeah. Um, the fact that these small moons are still there suggests that they had been created after the planetary formation phase, after that gas and dust had dissipated after the planetary formation era. And actually in trying to work out these complex processes about how these moons actually came about, it can help us learn a lot more about our early solar system. And it's something that actually we're still trying to properly understand. I know we've got an idea of there are these things in our solar system, there's the sun, there's the planets. We look at distant exoplanets too and we know very little about them compared to ours. But actually our solar system, we don't have all of it down yet. There's still a lot to learn about it. Interestingly, all of these 12 moons are officially still to be named, uh, but this oddball moon has provisionally been called uh, Valetudo, after the Roman god Jupiter's great-granddaughter, the goddess of health and hygiene. Now, I was quite interested in the sense of um, why, why had they picked yeah. this name? Um, so I found out that the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, they actually dictate that any new moons around Jupiter must be named after Roman gods related to Jupiter. So it had to be something related to uh, the Roman god Jupiter. And when Shepard, the leader of that team at the Carnegie Institute, when he found out that Valetudo was the Roman goddess of health and hygiene, he really insisted on calling it that because uh, it reminded him of his girlfriend who has multiple showers a day and is a very cleanly person. <laughs> so an inside joke there. Um, they are all 12 of them still yet to be named. So although this yeah. is a provisional name, it yeah. does have to go through the IAU. And actually, um, this might be a task that the public is actually enlisted to help with. There are these 12 objects, we need to find names for them. Perhaps the public can give their suggestions too. So that was my great fun story. Um, I love the idea of discovering things. It makes things seem so much uh, kind of bigger than what we already know, something, the idea of we're finding out something completely new. But just on the topic of naming uh, different things, people may also be aware that uh, the European Mars rover, which is due for launch in 2020, which has currently been known up to now as ExoMars, we're actually hoping to get an official name for it and the public have been enlisted for this. Um, the public are being asked for ideas about what we might call this rover uh, and it's one of the first rovers that will be sent there to dig deep into the Martian soil to find out uh, more about whether it may be hospitable for life. So if anyone is interested, uh, there's a website linked to Airbus. Airbus are responsible for assembling the rover and you can send your suggestions into there. Um, and suggestions will be taken in oct until October this year. So if anyone's got any good ideas, you could actually be uh, the person who comes up with the name for ExoMars, which is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> so there's my story for this month, Greg. Um, I know you were very, very excited to hear about this too, but mm. I'm sure you have come up with a very different 
but nonetheless exciting story too. Well, we, we were spoilt for choice this month. There are so many very interesting things that have been discovered this month. Um, but I've decided to go for something a lot further away um, than Jupiter. Um, so a few years ago, you may well remember, uh, there was, in fact, almost three years ago now, there was the, the first discovery of gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. So this is the first ever detection, direct detection, I'm sorry, of gravitational waves. Um, and last year or earlier this year, um, there was the first detection of gravitational waves along with light. So gravitational wave that also had um, light coming from the source, so you're able to pinpoint it nice and easily and go, that's where that wave came from. And that was the two neutron stars, was it? That's absolutely right. Two neutron stars colliding with one another produced this massive explosion, and we saw it, and we heard it in gravitational waves, if you can call it hearing. That's what we call multi-wavelength, sorry, not multi-wavelength, multi-messenger astronomy. So this is where we use things other than just light, preferably uses many different types of messenger, many different, many different types of media, as it were. So gravitational waves and light. So multi-wavelength using different types of light, multi-messenger using different types of light along with other different detection methods. Exactly, absolutely. Now, when the first gravitational waves were discovered uh, and, and finally detected, it was sort of, this is, this is now the age of multi-messenger astronomy. We can do all sorts of wonderful things. Um, but believe it or not, multi-messenger astronomy actually isn't something new. We've actually been doing it for a really long time. Um, to be fair, all of the rovers and things that we have on other planets and that sort of thing are technically multi-messenger astronomy as well, because they are dealing with the chemicals and various other things on the planet, so they're actually directly dealing with substances. But I'm talking about looking at things from a long distance. And one form of multi-messenger astronomy, which has been going for quite a while, is uh, particle physics astronomy. So this is detecting particles traveling through space, um, other than light, actual physical particles rather than just bits of light. And one of the major ones is something called the neutrino. Yeah. Now, a lot of people might have heard of the neutrino. Neutrinos are absolutely tiny, tiny, almost massless particles. They travel at practically the speed of light, but importantly, if they do have mass, they cannot be traveling at exactly the speed of light. They have to be traveling a little bit less. That's Einstein you can thank for that one. Um, and as I said, they are very, very small. They have a mass less than one millionth of an electron. An electron is already one two thousandth of a neutron or a proton, and that's only one tiny fraction of an atom. So these things are really, really small. So for our students studying at school, we'll have come across the atom, protons and neutrons, we'll know how small an electron is compared to them, and now we've got an idea of how much smaller this neutrino Absolutely. is in its mass. They're tiny, tiny little things. And uh, one thing about neutrinos is that they have a very low chance of what we call interaction. In other words, ramming into something um, and actually causing an effect. Um, Let's say that we have one particular neutrino, let's call him Alan, why not? Um, if we wanted to stop Alan, uh, if we set up a, a, a trap, effectively, of one light year of pure concrete that he had to travel down, you'd only have 50% chance of stopping him. Wow. So there's only a 50% chance of stopping Alan in this one light year, which is one quarter of the distance from our sun to the next nearest star piece of concrete. 
which might mean that we don't detect any neutrinos. I mean, how can you? Um, but we are actually saved by the fact that neutrinos are extremely common. So we're not trying to detect Alan. We're trying to detect Alan or any of his friends. And he has a lot of friends. Um, one is produced, one neutrino is produced for every nuclear reaction that occurs in the sun. Every single one. And there are about 10 to the 38 reactions per second in the sun. So that's a one with 38 zeros written after it, reactions per second. So you weren't lying when you said Alan has a lot of friends. A lot of friends. So that's 10 to the 38 neutrinos coming from the sun each second. Now we are an extremely long way away from the sun, 150 million kilometres. And yet, I can absolutely guarantee you that there are tens of trillions of neutrinos passing through you every second. Because there are so many being produced by the sun, they're streaming off in all directions. Trillions upon trillions of them are passing through you each second. Vast numbers. So we want to try to detect them somehow. Um, because even though there are a vast number of them, they're still very, very difficult to, to detect. Um, and Neutrino detectors come in all sorts of different designs, but one of the most common ones is to have some large, transparent, inert substance. Water is a particularly good one, um, and that's what's used in uh, one particular detector in Japan called Super Candy, which is a fantastic name. Um, it is basically a vast swimming pool, very, very deep, very, very wide, completely surrounded with light detectors. So the entire thing is dark, filled to the brim with water. Um, and then you've got light detectors around the outside. And on the very, very, very rare chance that a neutrino strikes an atom and actually does something, um, it will produce a flash of blue light. We call this Cherenkov radiation. And this can be seen by the light detectors around the outside. Uh, the light detectors that see the strongest response are closer to the... the um, to where the particle came from, and because of the way that Cherenkov radiation works, it's beamed in the direction that the neutrino came from. Right. So it, if you see a strong response, then you chart, you chart your path backwards and you try to work out where the neutrino came from. That seems almost backwards to what you might expect. Uh, so it's the, the yeah the, the path of light is coming it's coming in the direction sorry not in the direction not back the direction right sorry. okay in the direction that the neutrino came okay. from sure so you chart your path backwards and you find your, your where the neutrino was. sure okay and where it came from most importantly um, there is another possibility rather than using a vast amount of water uh, an alternative a more modern observatory is in the Antarctic it's called Ice Cube and that is literally what it is. It is uh, a vast amount of uh, pristine ice in the Antarctic that small holes have been drilled into, light detectors have been dropped into them, and then that, the, the ice, the pure ice that's been there for millions of years, is acting as your detector. So this isn't like, uh, you know, an industrial built kind of complex. Nope. This is using the ice that's out there in nature. You just drop in your photo yep. detectors into it. It is literally a natural ice cube that we've dropped detectors into. It's very so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a fantastic use as well. Um, so yeah, if you need a transparent inert substance, how about a vast chunk of the purest ice in the world? I mean, that'll do it. So that's ice cube. And that's one of the more modern neutrino observatories in the world. 
Uh, now, the neutrinos themselves come from all sorts of different sources. Uh, I've already told you that they come from the sun, in the nuclear reactions in the sun, and so they come from every, basically, nuclear reaction happening in the universe, all sorts of stars, um, and also dying stars, so exploding stars, massive stars at the end of their lives, they produce a lot of neutrinos too. Unfortunately, uh, we don't know exactly where the majority of them are coming from. Uh, we do know that some of them come from these things called ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. So these ultra-high, uh, very, very fast-moving blobs of stuff, basically, subatomic particles that aren't neutrinos, can themselves produce neutrinos when they're moving through space. Um, and we don't know where, the, where these ultra-high-energy cosmic rays are coming from either. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to pinpoint where neutrinos are coming from is uh, it's very difficult to, to tie them to a specific source. Um, it's a bit like uh, trying to identify a specific source of light, so one particular source of light, wearing a pair of very thick, poorly made glasses in a room entirely made out of candles. So you can tell a bit of light has entered your glasses, but it's all distorted, the image is all over the place, it's, uh, it's very difficult to work out, it's very blurry where it came from. And then even if you manage to identify the region that it came from and track it back to the wall of this room, the room is filled with candles, it could have come from any one of them. And that's the problem, trying to, to match the specific source to the specific neutrino. In fact, we've only done it three times. Wow. Three detections in the entire history of uh, neutrino detections, which is a good long time, 60 or 70 years of neutrino detections, we've only been able to tie one particular neutrino to a particular source three times. Shows how difficult it is. Absolutely. So one of them, it was around about 1940 in the earliest part of neutrino detections, and that was the sun. And that's not surprising because it's producing by far the vast majority of the neutrinos which are passing through us every, every second. So we were able to tie neutrinos directly to the sun. Um, the next one came about 40 or 50 years later, in 1987, when a supernova in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a dwarf galaxy that's orbiting around our much larger Milky Way galaxy, a supernova occurred in the centre of the, the Large Magellanic Cloud. We detected that. It was one of the closest supernovae that we've ever seen, most well-studied supernova that we've ever seen because of that. Um, and we detected a few dozen neutrinos from it. Um, with a bit of a delay, so we got an idea of how long, uh, a bit of a delay compared with the light. So we got an idea of how fast neutrinos travel from that. Mm, interesting. Um, the third detection was made just last year. So mm. almost 30 years later, um, in fact, about 30 years later, we finally made a third detection that we were able to tie to in a specific source. At first it was a single extremely high energy neutrino, um, and then by looking backwards in time through their records, they were able to find a few more that probably came from the same source as well, little bursts that came from somewhere before. And the important bit, the reason they were able to tie it directly to a source, at the same time that they received that neutrino, or around about the same time, they also received a hit of gamma rays coming from um, a distant source in the universe detected by a satellite in orbit around the Earth. 
multi-messenger astronomy. You've right. got neutrinos along with gamma rays, and then since then, all sorts of other types of light have been used to identify this object. So you've talked a lot about this distant object. What is it? <laughs> so what is it? Uh, <clears throat> well, it's a, it's a feeding supermassive black hole! Of course it is! <laughs> I swear to you, I'm not obsessed with these things. They're just really, really important. Um, and it's what we call a blazar. So this is a particular type of supermassive black hole. It's feeding a lot, producing a lot of energy, and more importantly, um, its jet is pointing directly at us. Just purely by coincidence, if, you, a small, if you're firing jets in all sorts of different directions, eventually one of them's gonna point at you by pure coincidence. Um, and this particular one was actually a blazer turning on. So this is um, a black hole that wasn't feeding, or wasn't feeding very fast, suddenly getting a massive amount of stuff added onto it, maybe it interacted with a cloud of gas in its galaxy, started feeding far more rapidly, that produces lots of gamma rays, lights up the jet, and it's the jet which accelerates the ultra-high energy cosmic rays, that then themselves produce the neutron, neutrinos, that then travel, for this particular one, four billion light years, before eventually being detected by a cube of ice in the Antarctic. Ah, so was it Ice Cube that detected this? It was Ice Cube that detected this particular neutrino. Um, now, we have thought that maybe blazars might be responsible for the majority of these ultra-high energy cosmic rays, and thus the, the cosmic neutrinos, as it were, the ones from much, much further away in our universe. Maybe this is some proof towards that, but then again, this is just the first detection. Um, Hopefully we won't have to wait another 30 years for another one in order to confirm that things are getting better. Uh, neutrino detectors are getting larger, they're getting more sensitive, they're getting better at pinpointing where the neutrino came from. Um, and with lots of uh, multi-messenger astronomy, so lots of using light as well, we're able to tie sources together much better. So hopefully we'll be able to understand where the cosmic rays are coming from, we'll be able to understand where the neutrinos are coming from, and if we understand those two, then we've got a better idea at some at things like magnetic fields and jets, which are both very poorly understood topics in astronomy. So hopefully they will lead us to some answers. Oh, the building blocks of the future. Absolutely. started here. It all started here when Greg told us the story about the neutrino being detected. To be fair, it started with the neutrino being detected. <laughs> what a brilliant story uh, to end our podcast with for this month. Um, we will be putting our two news stories to the vote on Twitter. Uh, that will be up on the first week of the month. Our Twitter handle is at ROG Astronomers, so please do vote for your favourite story. On the topic of last month's polls, uh, we had two news stories. So Greg had chosen uh, the updated news from the Mars rovers, and I chatted about uh, the first time that a very rare type of black hole was found, and once again, Greg, you have nipped, <laughs> you've nipped me to the top. So 59% of you chose the news from the Mars rovers, leaving 41% uh, for the rare black hole. Hopefully, it might be a change for this month's mm. podcast. We'll see. Um, you can also listen to some of our other podcasts, including interviews with astronauts and scientists. You can find them on SoundCloud if you search for Royal Observatory Greenwich. But that's it uh, from myself and Greg for this month. So we'll be back in September for our next Look Up podcast.